This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this week's episode is brought to you by the patrons Annalise, Betty, Vicky, and Andy. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this show without you. You are funding my debilitating content creation addiction and keeping me from starting an OnlyFans where I cut out my own organs to sell to the public to fund this addiction. So thank you so much. And for anyone listening to this who wants to join their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for just a dollar a month. You get extra content every single week, including my show House of Heretics with my co-host Timothy McPherson, who is a former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic. And we talk about politics. We talk about religion. We talk about all kinds of stuff from our slightly diverging perspectives. So it is always a fun time. You can also listen in live to our conversations and join in on the chat, on the live stream. It's always a fun time. Also, if you have not already, please do sign up for my newsletter on my website, stephenbradfordlong.com. I try to write an article every single week. Uh, This week, I wrote an article about Mitch Horowitz's thoughts on reading great occult texts, where he offers some insight into how to tackle really, really challenging texts. And I can't think of a more challenging text than, you know, a gargantuan tome of occult writing that is incomprehensible. But he is a scholar of occult texts, and he offers some really great insight into how to do that. And that is in line with the theme that we've been exploring on the website, on the blog recently, of how to read challenging stuff, how to read stuff that makes us uncomfortable, how to make a practice of it. So if that kind of stuff is interesting to you, then please do sign up for my newsletter, and you will get an article every single week, assuming you know, my life isn't too busy that week. Um, Also, if you haven't already, please do sign up for my Discord server. I have an incredibly interesting community there. There is fascinating conversation going on there every single day. People from all different backgrounds, people with many different perspectives, many of them Satanists, some of them Christians, some of them just, you know, garden variety atheists, some of them pagans, all sorts of interesting people there. So if you want to continue the conversation that you hear on the podcast, please go to the Discord server, and I love hearing from my audience. All right, all of that boring stuff out of the way. Jonathan Rausch, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be here. Now for the rest of the boring stuff. Now for the rest of the boring... No, lies. I think your writing is absolutely riveting. Okay, so for people who have not listened to our previous show together, which came out several months ago, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a senior fellow at Brookings and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. That's what's on my business card. Um, I'm 62 and for most of my life, starting in sometime in teenagerhood, I have been a big fan of free speech and the open society. And part of me, for whatever reason, early on aligned with some of the same values that you stand for, free thinking, open-mindedness, working hard to get to the right answer without fear or favor and, and all of that. I'm an atheistic homosexual Jew, but I'm a fan of organized religion as an important part of a healthy society, provided organized religion is itself healthy. And I wrote a book called Kindly Inquisitors in 1993, defending free thought against what was then a fairly new movement to police speech and thought because it hurt groups. Um, little did I know that Almost 30 years later, that would have matured into the movements we see today that involve things like canceling and word policing and safe spaces, microaggressions, and all the rest. Yeah, and you also just recently released a book called uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, which I've been spamming everyone in my life with. I've given everyone in my family a copy. I think they're very mad at me now because of that. Um, (laughs) I'm not. And, uh, you know, I've... I've been pimping your book on the podcast regularly. Uh, Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I was on the podcast before to talk specifically about the book, but it's about where knowledge and uh, freedom and peace come from in a free society and the structures that give us that and the ways that they're under attack right now. Hmm. So after our conversation a few months ago, um, I have no sense of time, so I don't 
actually know when that was, but, you know, a few months ago. After that conversation, you wrote an article called Uncanceling Ourselves. Uh, and you mentioned coming on to the podcast and, and parts of the conversation that we had. And this is an article you wrote for uh, Sapir, Ideas for a Thriving Jewish Future. I am so sorry if I mispronounced that. So tell us some about this article. Should we start there? Should should I give a little bit more background about your and my interaction that yeah, yeah, is let's, going on? Which let's which start, is the better place to start? Because there's a little bit of storytelling here. There is some storytelling. Let's start with the storytelling, actually. Okay. So I find myself on Stephen Long's podcast in what seems to be an un, an improbable conversation with with a Satanist, who it turns <laughs> out has a lot in common with me <laughs> and my ideas, and a big chunk. Not not all, but but a chunk of the Constitution of Knowledge and other writings recently are about the ways that small minorities of illiberal activists are able to police what we say and think and install themselves in our brains to do that. And we got to talking, and Stephen Long had some really interesting things to say about that that were kind of confessional. You know, right there in the podcast, I kind of wondered if Stephen would cut them out. Before he before he posted the podcast, Stephen did not. <laughs> Stephen did not. But he just very candidly said, "I'm going to paraphrase, so Stephen will correct me if he chooses." But but he said that he lives in fear of being mobbed and attacked by people um, who are fellow progressives, and that that kind of breaks his heart. Not only does it make the show less interesting than he would like it to be, and constrain his sense of who he can bring on the show and the kinds of conversations that he could have. And that's bad because he'd like to have, if he could get Jordan Peterson, good luck with that, but he'd like to have someone like Jordan Peterson or say Richard Reeves, who he subsequently did get, or some of the people who are gender critical, like, I don't know, Abigail Schreier. But he feels afraid. He was super candid about that. He just he just said, my life would be miserable for at least a month, maybe much longer. I'm afraid of my fellow progressives. And it was this confessional moment on the podcast. Um, so because it was too late for him to take that back, and because <laughs> I had it on tape, <laughs> he couldn't very well deny it. Meanwhile, this journal comes to me and says, we're doing a special issue on cancel culture. We want you to write about, is it real? What do we do about it? And I realized that that's, Stephen Long was was a good example of the point I wanted to make, which is that the way cancel culture works is it's not specific. It's not like McCarthyism in the early 1950s, where as long as you're diligently anti-communist, you'll be okay, right? Because that's where the landmines are. Cancelers don't want you to know where the landmines are. They want ordinary people, famous people to be blown up for stuff that they say, unexpectedly. It, it could be a tweet. It could be a wrong word. It could be completely random. In the case of David Shore, famously in 2020, he's a political analyst who tweets out an accurate scholarly description of a scholarly study on violent protest backfiring. And he's fired the next day. People go after his job. They say this is intolerable. There's no rational explanation that what he said on Twitter is any worse than any other tweet that day, because it's not. Mm -hmm. But they fixate on him, make an example of him, and what they're doing here is making us neurotically police our own minds, because we don't know where the boundaries are, we don't know what's safe, so we stay away from anything and everything. And even that doesn't help, because the language changes tomorrow. You know, So, so this is like Pavlov's dog, who you shock at random intervals, it can't control the situation. It becomes neurotic. And I'm realizing that's, forgive me, Stephen Long, if I put this too strongly, but but that's what's happened to Stephen. That is what's happened. He doesn't Absolutely. Know, yep. He doesn't know where the boundaries are anymore. So he's over-policing. He's become neurotic. He's become what I call a Stasi in his own soul. Mm. Uh, sorry, a Stasi in his own skull. Stasi was the famous East German intelligence um operation secret police who would who secret would police yeah yeah, yeah. And secret you, police you, you never knew when you would be reported in right you just had yeah. to assume that anyone you spoke to might be an informant 
you never knew where the boundaries were. Yeah. And that's how they subdued um, an entire country. The ultimate goal of canceling, as of all politicized information warfare, is to demoralize the target, to make them feel helpless. Resistance is futile. And that's what allows small minorities of the population, like the extreme woke left, to drive the conversation in universities, increasingly newsrooms, nonprofits, and corporations. That's a long way of saying, into my lap falls this wonderful example. So I lead my article <laughs> with Stephen Long and how he's canceled himself and how he's been manipulated. And so I'm working on this article for you know a period of time, period of weeks, and up pops Stephen Long in my email. One of the things that he said in our interview was that he'd like to interview broader diversity of people and take that risk. And I said, well, if you're serious about that, I'll send you a list. So I did. And up pops Stephen saying, I did that. And guess what? Nothing terrible happened. In fact, people seem to like it. And I'm like, yeah, you go, girl. This is how we break through canceling. This is how we uncancel ourselves. We stick our necks out and we realize, actually, it's it's not as scary as we think. And that's how we break the power of the cancelers. So that became the ending of my article. So thank you, Stephen Long. Yeah, I'm so glad that I could provide this uh, real life illustration. And what you were just saying about the randomness of it, the the randomness of of cancellation. So back in 2015, or was it 2016? I don't remember. But it was it was like mid two thousand mid two thousand tens, and I took a year off of the internet. I was like, you know, my mental health isn't great. I need to get my life in order. I need to, you know, figure some shit out. I need to just leave the internet. So that's what I did. And I think I did that in 2014. And then in 2015, I came back and it was like, I don't know what changed. It was like a different internet. It, it felt like a different environment somehow for me. And I don't know if it was just the circles that I re-entered, that they had been completely transformed. I don't know what happened. I mean, Gamergate was in the, Gamergate was happening. And I think Gamergate just escalated everything. I mean, I think Gamergate just ruined all of us. And I remember re-entering those online spaces and it was just like a terrifying blighted wasteland. It was like Mordor. It, it was terrifying because suddenly I didn't, a, a space that once seemed generous and hospitable suddenly seemed the exact opposite of that. And I got back to writing. I, I got back to writing weekly. And I remember this experience I had where I, I wrote an article. It was about, you know, my experience of being gay in the church and and trying to empathize with people who might be conservative on the topic of gay marriage theologically and and how I still need to try to 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 extend some sense of compassion and empathy towards the the cognitive dissonance that comes for people who are theologically conservative but are confronted with the reality of gay marriage and I that is painful that is a painful experience for a lot of people and I know that because I lived it and it's good for me to experience to, it's good for me to have compassion for that experience, even if I think they're wrong. I got fucking eviscerated for that. And it came out of nowhere. And it was like this handful of people who didn't just seem to disagree with me. They seemed to want me to just stop existing. They see the level of vitriol was very personal. It wasn't about, I think you're wrong. It was, I think you're bad. And I think you should stop existing. It and, and for someone who already has like a fragile psyche, who was just recently medicated, you know, I just finally got on, on antipsychotics. I had finally just started to get my life kind of back together because my mental health was just so horrible. For someone like me, just trying to get my life back on the rails, that was just quite simply a horrific formative experience for me. And I, it was like, you kick the dog, and then the dog is just terrified <laughs> for the rest of its life. And I feel like that's what happened to me. And that's what started this, this trend of 
of me just never knowing what is going to come back and cause pain for me. Especially since, you know, someone someone on Twitter recently this week called me an SJW weirdo. Okay, if it's someone who's on the far right, I don't give a fuck, right? Because they aren't my tribe. <laughs> it isn't my yeah, people. You can embrace that. I can embrace that. Yes, it's like, fuck yeah, I'm an SJW weirdo. Yeah, but right. ironically, it was the same night when I, when I found a, a thread about me because I was I was very bad in reading stuff about me because, you know, it was it was one of those nights of going down the social media spiral. And I found a thread on me on on a forum and it was basically like Stephen Bradford Long is the Joe Rogan of Satanism. And I hate him for reasons X, Y, and Z. And I and so it was it was telling to me which one of those hurt more than the others? It was the in-group. It's always the in-group that hurts more. It's the person who says, you know, I think Stephen is the Joe Rogan of Satanism <laughs> versus the, the random chud on Twitter who's like, Stephen is an SJW weirdo. But that experience in 2015, I think just set me on this course of just being terrified. And this reminds me of a passage that you wrote. I'll wrap up this like unexpected therapy session <laughs> in a minute. But you have this passage that, that I relate to massively. You write, if people were merely flinching from ordinary criticism, one might call on them to thicken their skins. But what many people fear is not being criticized, but being canned. In the 2020 Cato survey, a third of Americans, again across political spectrum, said they worry about missing out on career opportunities or losing their job if their political opinions become known. The fear is not unreasonable. Almost a quarter of respondents supported firing an executive who donates to Joe Biden, and almost a third would fire an executive who donates to Donald Trump. And then elsewhere, I can't find it right now, you have canceling is, I'll just paraphrase, canceling is not about criticizing ideas. It is about targeting you for deletion. It is about targeting a person for deletion rather than targeting an idea for refinement. That's a paraphrase. But when I read that, I related to that so much because my experience back then was these people, this isn't about ideas. This is about me as a person. And I think that that's a really helpful delineation where cancel, canceling is about the fundamental goodness or badness of an individual. Anyway, I will. That's that's a ramble. What are your thoughts? <laughs> where to begin? One thing I want to point out is that some of what you said in our last podcast conversation was something that I related to very deeply as as a gay man. Now we're different generations. I'm 62. You look like you might be 32. I don't know. 34. Um, 34. Well, yeah. close. So that's a big difference. But what I heard was very similar because because you were saying it wasn't just that you were frustrated because the podcast wasn't as interesting or adventurous as you like it to be. You were also saying that you felt that you had sacrificed your integrity. That mm -hmm. you were in situations now where, where socially you had to hide your true beliefs or soft pedal your true beliefs, and that sometimes you would actually misstate what you thought in order to fit in, um, and that you felt terrible about that. And I immediately go to the closet. Now, the closet is, as I experienced it, is an order of magnitude more destructive and soul-crushing. Um, you're every day denying who you are and playing along with people by at least being silent when they're making the fag jokes. But it's the same dynamic, right? When you're walking around living a life of fear, feeling that you can't express who you truly are, canceling and policing yourself, that isn't just about suppressing what you say, it's about suppressing who you are. And, and that gets to your second point. That's the goal. So, I don't want to ramble too much, but it's a rambling uh, podcast today, so it's okay. <laughs> so well, I'll, I'll lay some groundwork. So let's talk about my article for a minute and what I was trying to do. It's available online, by the way. Hopefully, link in show notes. Mm -hmm. 
if you want to talk about canceling, you have to deal with the fact that that there's emerged a pro-canceling caucus and they have an argument. In fact, they have a number of arguments that they've now developed. The first argument is that canceling doesn't exist, that it's just a derogatory term for ordinary criticism. Their second argument is that yes, attacks on individuals may happen, but they're very rare and they're rich and powerful individuals who should be the subject of accountability that they've never had before. Third argument they make is that canceling is engaged in, if it's a thing, they call it accountability culture, that accountability culture is a thing engaged in by historically oppressed minorities who, thanks to social media, have finally found their voice. So it's egalitarian. It's an evening up of the odds and lifting of a kind of oppression. And then the fourth thing they say is that that kind of accountability is good, not bad. That that if Stephen Long or Jonathan Rauch has to think twice or three times and worry about saying evil racist shit, that's a good thing, right? That's that's what we want in society. So there's this multi-layered defense that they're making. And in my article, I I tried to take those on. And we can talk about them individually if you want. You just raised a couple of them. Um, well, you raised the most fundamental of them. And this goes back to the, the origins of modern science and the entire constitution of knowledge, the rules and norms that we rely on in order to have a knowledgeable, free, and peaceful society. This is the revolution that brought about modern science and law and journalism and government and anchors our entire society to truth and makes learning possible on a social level. It's that fundamental. And here it is, as stated by the great philosopher of science, Karl Popper. Well, paraphrase him. We kill our hypotheses instead of killing each other. So, fundamental problem of human beings as animals is that we see the world differently. We disagree. We are deeply invested in our viewpoints. We perceive people who disagree with us often as fundamentally threatening to our way of life, even our existence. How do we resolve that historically? Well, Satanists are evil. They're dangerous. They're going to bring down God's wrath on society. Uh, they're completely wrong. They're perverse. Why would you allow that? We throw them in jail. We kick them out of society or, you know, sometimes it's just easier to kill them. Which is something that has been argued, by the way, from the from the far right. Charlie Kirk wrote an wrote an op ed where he basically argued exactly that um, <laughs> for killing Satanists, for, not for killing Satanists, but for using, quote, the full force of the law against Satanism and that there are reasonable limits to freedom of expression and religion. And one of those reasonable limits is is Satanism. Yeah. So that may sound shocking to you and me, but that's the standard way of dealing with it. Yep. Um, again, paraphrasing the, the great American philosopher in the 19th century, Charles Sanders Peirce said, when other means of settling differences of opinion did not succeed, a massacre of all who believed in a certain way usually served the purpose quite well. Hmm. Um, that's how human beings have done it. The problem with that is it makes erring, making a mistake or seeming to err, a fatal a fatal proposition. And if if you can't make conjectures and hypotheses, knowing that if they're wrong, you won't lose your life, we all become silent. Orthodoxy is enforced. There is no public disagreements. Uh, without public disagreements, we can't learn because we can't see our own biases. We're all subject to conformism and confirmation bias and everything else. So along comes this very different idea it starts around the time of John Locke and the scientific revolution. And, and it says, wait a minute, maybe knowledge is not what we're certain of. Maybe knowledge is what we doubt. Maybe we can rest knowledge on doubt instead of certainty. This is a new idea in the history of the world, basically. But it says if you can organize a lot of doubters into a community where they are constantly challenging and criticizing and evaluating each other's hypotheses, then you can get rapid development of knowledge. But for that to happen, you have to make it legal to make mistakes. You want Stephen to issue a conjecture. Maybe it's completely wrong. Maybe it's obnoxious. It gets knocked down in the course of dialogue. Um, 
what happens to Stephen? Well, we take him out and shoot him. Um, well, actually, no, we don't take him out and shoot him. You, you don't actually hear about scientists demanding that other, other scientists be rounded up and shot. Instead, we say Stephen was wrong and he's lost the argument. That means Stephen is now free to spend the rest of his life developing more hypotheses, mm-hmm. adding more to the debate. Now, if he's a clown, he'll get ignored. But most of us, even in good faith, even if we're Nobel Prize winners, are going to make mistakes. So what you've now done by not criminalizing error, not making error a career-destroying problem, you've now created a world where you can have a global network of minds that are interconnected in a common search for error, all knowing that they can make good faith mistakes and not lose their jobs, their livelihoods, their reputations, their friends, and all of that. That's what makes social learning possible. It all depends on that. Well, a lot of people don't like that system. They prefer the old system. Um, Usually it's because they want political power for themselves. And intimidation and fear is a good way to get that. It's not always that simple. Often they're ideologues who think that they know best and are helping society by, I don't know, uh, bringing the full force of the law down on Stephen Long or Jonathan Rauch. For whatever reason, they prefer the old system, which boils down to shut up, he explained. They can undermine the whole knowledge-making system, the whole constitution of knowledge, if they make everyone frightened of ever making a mistake. And that's exactly what canceling is. It says, no, we're not just saying, Stephen, you're wrong. Hmm. You messed up on your evidence. Your logic is bad. You misstated the other side's point of view. They say, Stephen, you are evicted from polite society. From here on out, if anyone Googles your name, racist is going to be attached to it, or homophobe, or sexist, or transphobe, or whatever it happens to be. Not only that, we will usually misstate or lie about what you've said. We will organize others into a mob campaign against you. That's not allowed in science. You can't organize people into a mob to get someone fired. We'll do even more than that. We'll engage in secondary boycotts. This is a real hallmark of canceling that distinguishes it from just criticism. We'll not only go after you, we'll go after anyone who defends you. So now people are afraid to be associated with you. You've become radioactive. We'll reduce your entire career to possibly a single word in a single tweet. We'll never tell you what the rules are so that you'll be constantly uncertain whether you're about to get canceled. Doing this creates a chilled atmosphere where people don't know what it's safe to say. They don't venture hypotheses. They don't have interesting conversations. The production of knowledge grinds to a halt. Orthodoxy is substituted. The people who are engaged in canceling are elevated politically and QED. That's the result they're looking for. Yeah. You know, listening to you talk, this this reminds me of the experience that I had in gay activism in the early 2010s. So back in another life, previous life, I was a gay Christian. I went through the ex-gay world. Um, so so gay conversion stuff. That's a whole other part of my life. <laughs> the the main the flagship ex-gay organization was called Exodus International. For people who don't know what I'm talking about, ex-gay is the kind of Christian, the 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 Christian response to to gay people, and there are several variations of it. What there is kind of a psycho, uh, a kind of a, a Freudian approach, which is through therapy you can kind of resolve deep wounds from childhood to to correct your orientation to return. And then there are other forms of ex-gay where it's more through spiritual guidance and prayer. There there are many different variations of ex-gay therapy. It's it's often shortened to quote, pray the gay away. And that's kind of much too reductive but it gets the basic idea of it. Gay is not God's intended outcome for humanity. Being gay and living the, quote, gay lifestyle is not God's vision of what is best for you. So that's the world that I grew up in. And it never occurred to me as I was writing about this, as I was writing about the harms of ex-gay therapy, and it got very acrimonious. I mean, it got very ugly sometimes. 
during that. And I'm sure you know about this in your own life as, you know, seeing, you know, the 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 rise of gay marriage and and all of this stuff, right? I so you know, you're an elder gay from another generation, so I'm sure you experienced this in your own way, but it was very acrimonious back then. But it never occurred to me I need to destroy Exodus International. I wanted it to end. I wanted it to not exist, but it never occurred to me that I should leave the playing field of ideas, the playing field of story, of telling stories. It never occurred to me that I should leave that playing field and try to destroy it in another way, in an underhanded way, in a we're going to infiltrate, we're going to whatever, we're going to do weird underhanded shit to try to destroy Exodus International. It, that never occurred to me. And eventually Exodus International did close. It did die, but it didn't die because of weird underhanded shit. It died because we convinced Alan Chambers, the president, that it was wrong. That's why Exodus International died. I had conversations with Alan Chambers. Other people had conversations with him. It was a long, brutal, arduous process that lasted for years, and it ended in a change of heart. And it was conversation that did it. The result was, in 2013, Alan Chambers shuttered Exodus International. That's a success story, and I'm incredibly proud of that. I, I'm, I'm, and it wasn't me. I mean, it was me and hundreds of other people involved in telling these stories of the harms of ex-gay therapy. But it never occurred to me to say, we need to destroy Exodus International by doing some underhanded shit outside the realm of ideas and words. I want to, I want to destroy the board of Exodus International. That just never occurred to me. And it still doesn't occur to me. When there are, okay, take, I don't know, take The Daily Wire, or take The Blaze, or take, you know, whatever, whatever, or Epoch Times, <laughs> you know, whatever bullshit right-wing thing. I mean, those aren't all the same. They're they're different along that spectrum of right-wing stuff. But it, it just never occurs to me to say, I need to destroy this corporation. That never occurs to me. And this, there's something that feels deeply violating to me when, when that's trespassed. Does that make well, sense? As, as it should. So my generation on the what's now called LGBT and then called gay and lesbian rights movement did not, with only very rare exceptions, engage in canceling. Um, we didn't say that because someone disagreed with us that they should be expelled from polite society forever, that they should lose their job, um, nor did that happen. Now, one reason for that might be that we didn't have the power to do that. We had nothing like the cultural clout that, for example, uh, radical gender ideologists have today. You know, they've they've got large followings in academia and on Twitter and can really make life very miserable if you say, for example, that humans really only come into biological sexes. Well, we couldn't do that because we were pariahs. People loved to be criticized by homosexuals because that showed that they were morally upstanding. So we didn't have that weapon. And it is true, maybe if we had had those cultural weapons that we might have used them because we're human, but I like to think that part of it was that most of the activists of my generation believed that we were not fighting for freedom of speech and freedom of thought and integrity, leading your life according to your best concept of yourself and your truest concept of yourself. We didn't think we were fighting for that just for ourselves at the expense of others. We thought we were fighting for that for everybody. So we thought if gay people could be out of the closet to be who we actually are, that that would benefit society. Mm. But I think a lot of us thought the same for pe people we disagreed with. We weren't in favor of conformity. The whole, the whole point was to be against enforced conformity, coerced social conformity. If anyone in America understands canceling, it's homosexuals because canceling was, you know, 
invented against us. We lost our jobs if we came out. We lost our reputations. We lost our friends. People shunned us. Yeah. So the last thing we wanted was to impose that on someone else. And if one thing breaks my heart today, it's that, sorry, Stephen, your generation <laughs> is coming from a very different place where a lot of them, like I was on stage debating one of them just, I guess, last month. Where they're coming from is, you know, the people who disagree with us are evil yeah. and they have evil ideas and they're hurtful ideas and they're oppressive ideas. You know, they, they hurt gay kids and that's wrong and harmful. And so they should be driven from polite society. They should not be saying those things. We should be silencing them. That's okay. That breaks my heart for a bunch of reasons. One is the obvious, you know, the classic case for civil rights, which is once you give someone the power to police what other people say, it's going to be used against us. It's used us. against us. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, it'll turn around. You know, we're minorities in a majoritarian society. Another is that it's, it's just morally wrong. Yes. We should not be in the business of coercing and silencing and frightening others as was done to us. Of all people, we should, gay people should know better. And the third thing, reason it's, it's wrong, is just pragmatically, it doesn't work. What you said is absolutely true. The way you make progress for new ideas, for justice, social justice in a society, is not by attempting to silence those who disagree with you, because then they run off and vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, we we you may stifle people. them. Yeah, yeah, you empower them, but I mean, you may silence them in certain contexts, but you haven't convinced them, and in fact, you've made them resentful and angry, and they think you're oppressive, and you are. Um, so canceling never works. What does work is exactly what you experience. It's what we did in the gay marriage movement. For you know, obviously it took a while, and obviously it was not fun to go door to door in America pleading, "Oh, please, Mister Straight Person, can't I get married like you? Won't you give me that dignity?" That was not especially fun, but boy, did it work. We shot down their arguments. Their arguments were terrible. We dismantled them. We showed them that what we wanted to do was live lives of love and be integrated into family and community. We showed them that we could be and were responsible parents. We reminded them of the value of marriage, which they had forgotten. I don't know. Was it Britney Spears who went to Las Vegas and got married for 36 hours? Mm -hmm. We weren't doing shit like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> and by doing all that, I mean, today, 70% of the American public supports gay marriage, and a large number of Republicans have just voted for a bill that enshrines that in federal law, which I never thought I'd live to see. It's a friggin' miracle. And it happened because we were willing to do the hard work of educating people because we were willing to listen to them and converse with them instead of canceling them. Absolutely. And you have a set of quotations from civil rights heroes at the end of your article, let's see, you, here, here's what you say. Hosea Williams, a lieutenant of Martin Luther King, was fully aware of that when on national TV in the 1970s, he called for freedom of speech for the KKK. John Lewis, the civil rights legend, was aware of it when he said, without freedom of speech and the right to dissent, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. Frederick Douglass, the former slave was aware of it when he said to suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. Uh, but they were also aware of the problem with the hateful and ignorant speech, uh, aware that the problem with hateful and ignorant speech is not the speech, but the hate and ignorance. And that robust freedom of expression combined with the discipline of fact is the only proven remedy. As Douglas said, Slavery cannot tolerate free speech. Five years of its exercise would banish the auction block and break every chain in the South. Yeah, that that reminds me of uh, Solzhenitsyn's quote where he says um, a, a, something like a thousand falsehoods cannot endure the weight of a single truth. And, you know, what where do where where do I want to go? I just had a thought. Well, I could comment on that. Yes, please. Please do. Please you're do. not sure where to go. Um, the Solzhenitsyn quote that, that I especially like, it's not quite that. It's that the lie may prevail, but not through me. Mm, yeah. He's saying each one of us can be a bulwark against canceling, against disinformation, propaganda, and lies, and that that's the source of our integrity. And he also says something that my you know friends, the radical activists who are doing canceling, forget, is that the line between good and evil runs through all of us. Through every human heart. Not that we're good and they're evil. Yeah. We all have to struggle. And and that's way too easily forgotten. 
the context for that Frederick Douglass quote, which you read, he gave one of the greatest defenses of free speech in the name of abolitionism, which at the time when he gave the speech, abolitionism was considered the way same-sex marriage was in 1995, only worse. Most people thought it was a crazy and dangerous idea that was being promulgated by a small group of radical activists. So abolitionists held a rally in Boston, and this will sound familiar. Guess what happened? They were deplatformed. A bunch of, they used violence, but not all that unlike what happened at Yale Law School just a few months ago. Um, they swarmed the the abolitionist rally and made a lot of noise what, and started what, tearing what happened tearing at the Yale place down. Law, I'm sorry. Tell us what happened at Yale Law School school late and when you finish this story. Yeah, I'll, I'll circle back. So, so basically, this mob shut down the rally and canceled it, deplatformed it, and Frederick Douglass, the second greatest American of the 19th century comes back with this great defense of free speech and says that slavery could not survive five years of free speech. Mm. Um, people forget that can, the, the slave power was radically opposed to free speech. It would, it would mob and destroy abolitionist printing presses. It tried to extend this power to the free states as well as the slave states. So now we fast forward to 2022, and at Yale Law School, someone has a panel conversation, and they invite a pro-life advocate for a group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a conservative Christian, pro-life, religious liberty, all of that. And a bunch of Yale Law students start protesting, yelling, deplatforming the event. And what's shocking about this is that these aren't 18-year-old hot-headed undergraduates. Yale Law students are the cream of the crop. They are young adults. They're all in their 20s. Uh, they're going to go on to be lawyers, judges, and, and politicians. And these are the people, dozens of whom, are pounding on the walls and shouting and refusing to let the event go on. Well, that's not all that different from what happened in Boston in the 1850s. But it's especially shocking because it's happening in such an elite environment and because so many elites are now defending it. Speaking of the elite part, I really just need to write an article about this. There's an element here in all of the discourse of, of, you know, do not give people you believe have harmful ideas an inch. Just don't do it. I live and work at an economic level where I do not have the luxury of choosing my peers in work. Most people in my position, I mean, it, within my setting, I have quite a bit of power. I'm a manager, but I, all I wasn't always a manager. I work in this food service industry. I'm trying to gain more, more economic dependence and, and build that up. But the, the fact is, working class people and lower middle class people do not have the luxury of choosing their ideological peers. If you are working at McDonald's, you don't get to choose who's next to you in the kitchen. If you're working at a restaurant, if you're working in construction, if you're working in the service industry at Target, you don't get to fucking choose that. Plus, they are relying on me and I'm relying on them because we're a team. And so on one side, next to one shoulder, is going to be some Trump supporter living in the holler and then on the other side is going to be an anti-fascist uh, anarcho-syndicalist. We have to figure out how to work together in the factory, on the floor, in the truck. In, and so there's something just unbelievably classist about this to me. And I find it so offensive. I just, it, and it never gets commented on because... The fact is there are a ton of people of color and there are a ton of trans people and gay people and women and all of the minorities where we just don't have the we don't work in a cushy desk job or in an elite institution where we can choose our ideological peers. We have to work with the people who are given to us. And more often than not, those people are going to be ultra conservative or have very complex views or, you know, be very different from us. I've had co-managers who are 
conservative Christians who probably think I'm going to hell. And we've had to learn to work together. I have one I, one person I actually came to really love because um, she was she was so sweet and she I would regularly, you know, if something, you know, if a, if a bottle of spaghetti sauce crashes to the floor and shatters, I would go, Jesus Christ. And she would yell from several aisles down. He's my Lord and Savior, Stephen. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm on I'm... her side. Do not use the name of the Lord in vain. Deeply offensive. I try not to. Uh, I try to be a polite Satanist and not piss off Christians. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, but we, ha- which is why that context might help my listeners understand where I'm coming from, where I don't have the choice. I don't get to choose whether I can be around certain people who believe certain things or not. I have to learn to work with them, right? Which, which you're saying is very true and gives me an opportunity to make another of my main points yes, about please. canceling. So I mentioned the like four-part layered argument that cancelers make in their own defense. Mm. And one of them is that the people who are doing the canceling are marginalized people who are finding their voice, and the people who are their targets are wealthy elites who have dominated the conversation until now and who are finally facing criticism and accountability. And there's some problems with that. Yes, indeed. (laughs) The biggest problem with it is it's not true. What you just said is the truth, which is virtually all canceling is by elites, usually against other elites, but it's college-educated progressives typically white, who are targeting other college-educated progressives, also typically white, and policing their viewpoints in a bid for power. The people who you're working with at your grocery store or who are working for you are not on Twitter. That's right. They are not inspecting, fine-tooth combing the posts of their ideological enemies, looking for ammunition to begin mobilizing mob campaigns to get someone fired to make a point. That's right. They don't have the time. They don't have the money. Canceling is a luxury hobby. It is. Um, it's a it's a and, uh, luxury ideology. What what was it yeah, that, a, that Rob Henderson called luxury beliefs? It's a luxury yeah, belief. Yeah, luxury beliefs. Yeah, it's it's a luxury belief. It's something you do if you have the time and the social status and the organizational know-how and the ideological predisposition. As to the notion that the targets of canceling are wealthy, powerful people who've been previously held unaccountable, um, the people who are canceling are not very discriminating about their targets. And many of the cases, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, there's websites that accumulate them, are perfectly ordinary people who are vulnerable to being canceled. They're people like Nancy Rommelman, who's was the co-proprietor with her husband of Ristretto Roasters in Portland, Oregon. They were subject to a cancel campaign because she questioned whether sometimes enthusiasm for Me Too was was running afoul of due process. So a a campaign was launched and and they lost their business. Yoga parlors, there was a, I mean, they're like hearing aid fitters. This can be anyone randomly chosen in many cases who sticks their neck out because remember the cancelers are not if they're canceling Stephen long you're not their ultimate target they don't care about you they're simply using you to send a message to the rest of the world that if you go where Stephen is going we're going to get you you could be anybody and they're probably lying about your actual beliefs so they're not making these fine distinctions one famous case of that is david shore he's just an analyst at left-leaning analyst. He gets canceled for retweeting uh, an academic study. Even more famous, Emmanuel Cafferty. He's a San Diego gas and electric lineman. He's driving down the street and cracking his knuckles. And someone takes a picture of this and posts it on Twitter saying, this guy's making white supremacist hand gestures. Get him. He loses his job the next day. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Even though the person who tweeted that out subsequently said, I was wrong. He's not a white supremacist. It didn't matter. It's not about the target, ultimately. The target is simply being used as a cutout in a propaganda campaign designed to dominate 
dominate the public discourse. So let's forget about this notion that this is holding the rich and powerful accountable. Canceling is being done by culturally powerful people in order to consolidate their domination their power over public discourse. Yeah, it's yeah. a power move. It is. It 100% is. And you know, all of this is what you, what you are saying about it often affecting people without without power. I mean, it 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 often people who are the targets of this thing are very often just struggling people. And that's been my experience as well. I mean, Steven Pinker, he's fine. I mean, <laughs> just say what you will about Pinker. He's fine. He's untouchable. Say what you will about J.K. Rowling. She's untouchable. She lives in a fucking palace in, in the UK, right? No, <laughs> she is uncancelable. It isn't about them. It is about people silencing themselves and and ordinary people who don't have the resources to defend themselves. Well, that's, that's right. But with minor discordant note, which is it is not the case that J.K. Rowling has nothing to worry about. Because remember, what they're going after isn't just your bank account. It's actually rarely your bank account. It's your reputation. And the more you depend on an audience that you've built over a period of years, the more vulnerable you are to reputational damage. Yeah. Um, and that's why even J.K. Rowling, in some ways, maybe especially J.K. Rowling, have to be, you know, they it takes a lot of guts yeah. um, for the world's most beloved author to to sacrifice that. And you're right. Someone like Pinker, yeah, I mean, he's got a huge audience. He's probably not going to suffer. There was a cancel campaign that some graduate students led against him. A few hundred people filed, wrote a, signed a letter mm -hmm. with some pretty ridiculous complaints. It wasn't a problem ultimately for Pinker. But the point you make is right. Pinker's not the ultimate target. What they're really doing is saying, if we can go after Steven Pinker, you better believe we can come after you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I won't go down the J.K. Rowling rabbit hole and because we're short on time. But everything you're saying is reminding me of a video done by Lindsay Ellis. Do you know who Lindsay Ellis is? No. I will send you her video because she she did a fantastic video where she describe and she's a big lefty well it was because she's now not on youtube anymore she she self-canceled but a really really big lefty youtuber and content creator and author who just did really cool videos from like a, a left perspective analyzing media so she would like talk about disney movies and she would talk about books and she would talk about and just classic you know very feminist, very intersectional, very like my kind of girl. But she wrote she 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 experienced a horrific cancellation campaign and then she made a a video about it. And in this video, she says this. A friend of mine named it the beast. The name for this fear that we all live under but don't acknowledge. And over the last few years, I've had so many of my colleagues all of them women, people of color, trans people, queer people, or some combination of the above, voice to me the constant anxiety that they live with about maybe saying something wrong that will get them on the bad side of their own communities. Every thought is a hostage situation. Is this the tweet that is going to sink me? So what do we call it? What is, this, what is the name for this unspoken, unacknowledged culture of fear where we all know that one misstep can ruin our lives. This social media culture where we participate in the public shaming one day and become chained to the pillory the next. We can't even talk about it because the beast doesn't have a name. If we admit that this is a problem, the right will just take it and run with it and use it to increase their own power, same as they did with canceled, same as they did with woke, same as they did with fake news. If it has a name, then it has power. So it is a discussion that cannot be had. And so we do not have it. We say cancel culture does not exist, and we ignore this disease. Pretend it isn't doing real harm, not just to the individuals who are targeted, but to the state of discourse in general, especially to individuals in marginalized groups, because they are always held to the highest standard of purity and they always have the most to lose. That, to me, sums it up.
there's there's another aspect to this where there's just this crippling fear that if we talk about a problem, we are handing it to the right to weaponize it. So if there's like a skeleton, yeah. Well, of course, the reality is if we don't talk about the problem, then we're giving it, gets worse. We're giving it to them exactly. And we give it to them. Yeah, that's right. Well, this is also an opportunity to touch on one of those other of the of the multiple layered arguments that mm. that, that so called accountability culture defenders make, which is that actually the the canceling is a wildly exaggerated phenomenon that. A few people, or the privileged elites and conservatives, are claiming our society is rampant with canceling. In fact, it rarely happens, and it's way overrated, and can't we move on to our bigger important problems? So that's a defensible proposition that can be tested empirically. Yes. And the results of those tests are pretty clear. Hmm. About two-thirds of Americans say that they suppress their true political beliefs for fear of social consequences. That appears to be approximately three to four times the level of self-censorship that was going on in the early 50s at the height of the McCarthy era. If that seems strange to people, given the ferocity of the anti-McCarthy, of the, pardon me, of the McCarthy era, Remember something I alluded to earlier, in the McCarthy era, you knew how to be safe. Mm. If you stayed away from communism, denounced communism, and by the way, we're not a homosexual working for the government, you're probably okay. Mm. Most people didn't have to worry about it. It's not true today because the boundaries are continually shifting and that's the way the counselors want it. A third of Americans across all ideological categories from left to right say that they're afraid of stating their true political opinions for fear of losing a job or other career consequences. In other words, they're afraid of losing their livelihood, a third of Americans. That's not just a handful of elites, right? That's a lot of people that you and I know. I think you alluded to this earlier, but large numbers of Americans, including I think over 40% of people under 30, say that if a business executive donates to the Trump campaign, they should be fired. Now, these ideas that you should lose your job, that you're afraid of losing your job, if you join the conversation in an open and honest way, that's not consistent with a free society. It's not consistent with a learning society. Um, it's not consistent with human dignity. So it is, it is not the case that there's nothing to see here, move on. I should uh, probably move on pretty soon, but if I could, Stephen, I just wanted to ask you about how things have unfolded since we last talked, because you mentioned before we started recording that you'd had Richard Reeves on the show and that he's controversial in some of your circles, and you mentioned to me that you were branching out more. I'd mm -hmm. like to hear more about how your life has changed and how that's working out. Absolutely. So... The Reeves interview has not yet dropped. If production schedule goes according to plan, it will be the interview that comes out a week before this one. So we will see what happens. But, you know, I in general, things have been really good. I think I annoy people sometimes. I think I, I raise people's hackles sometimes where because I, I talk about stuff that people get annoyed by, right? Free speech is one of them. Religious freedom is one of them. Just stuff that, that seems to be talking points of the far right. But the, the fact is I, I've just decided that if I believe something and it's in the wheelhouse of my public content, I'm going to talk about it publicly, and that's just a thing that I've decided. I'm not—I I believe free speech is important, so I'm going to talk about it. That is a genuine belief that I have, and if people want to make fun of it, which some people do, that's fine. Whatever. It's a, it's a conviction that I have, and I have reasons for believing it, and I think those reasons are well-grounded, and to me, that's enough to talk about it. So— in terms of my specific community, in, in terms of my audience, they seem to be responding just really well to it, to having you on, to my my kind of ongoing struggle to know how to navigate 
certain conversations and how to have good conversations. I think I've cultivated an audience who are just really mature and who I don't need to coddle. And every so often something will pop up that where people will will express their displeasure with me. A thread on Reddit will appear or whatever. And that's I've just I've decided that's fine. <laughs> I've decided that if people don't like me, they don't need to like me. That's fine. You know, that no one needs to like me. No one needs to agree with me. That's fine. And if they don't want to engage in conversation with me, that's okay too. But I welcome conversation. I I because I want to learn. And if I'm wrong, I I know that I'm wrong. I know my my track record in life is that I'm wrong more than I am right. And th- I genuinely believe that about myself. So of course I'm going to be wrong about something. Right now, I'm I of course I am and I need other people. We need each other because we're all kind of seeing reality from a different angle and if we work together, we figure that shit out. Um if people don't want to do that with me and my community, that's fine. I can't force them to. So in general, it's actually been pretty quiet. It's it's been pretty chill. I I do regularly So the biggest change, I think what I'm hearing yep. you saying is that your life has not changed a lot. Your audience has so far been receptive. Absolutely. The biggest change is inside of you. Yes. You have you have decommissioned the Stasi agents in your in your head. Well we're still fi- we're we're still working on firing them. You know, it's a it's a gradual process. I and also I've gotten I've gotten some clarity on really once you get over this crippling fear, this is what I'm finding. This is actually the process that I've been going through over the past week, which is once I get over this crippling fear, that's the point at which I can start thinking critically about how to have constructive conversations, right? And so I had a really productive conversation with one of my best friends who's a professional journalist because someone online was actually comparing the two of us and saying, I wish Stephen was as good an interviewer as she was. He's he's not as good of an interviewer and he lets things slide. He doesn't push back enough, just so on and so forth. And I showed this to my friend and she was like, no, it isn't because you're not as good of an interviewer. You're an excellent interviewer. It's because I'm a professional journalist, is what she said. I'm a professional journalist. It's my full-time job. I have the ability to spend literally a month just preparing for a conversation. I have the luxury of just spending two weeks straight preparing for a conversation, which means I'm just more competent. And so ever since I've, once I've gotten over the abject terror of doing the wrong thing and how that might punish me, I can actually start to think more clearly about being a responsible interviewer and how a lot of that just is a matter of of time that I may not have. So say having on a, uh, you know, Majid Nawaz, who's become a very controversial figure who does a lot of weird COVID, what seems like COVID denial stuff. If I were to have that conversation, I would need to spend a lot of time preparing for it, and I just do not have the time to do that. So I'm not going to have that conversation because I don't know if I would be able to to do that well. I don't know if I would be able to have a productive conversation. Someone like Richard Reeves, though, I feel like I can't. I mean, not comparing the two, by the way. I don't know. Does that make sense? It it's helped me think more clearly. Ironically. It's helped me think more clearly about the craft of interviewing and the kinds of interviews that are within my capability and which aren't. Does that make sense? And it it's actually given yeah, me yeah. it's given me confidence in what is within my skill set and what isn't. Um, That's very interesting. And and yes, it it makes sense. It's hard to do good journalism from a place of fear. Exactly. Exactly. Which, by the way, is why authoritarians work so hard to intimidate journalists. Mm -hmm. They know that perfectly well. And also, what you're saying takes takes me back a little bit to where we started and the analogy between um, fear of being canceled and fear of being outed. Yeah. Which is one of the things that, that you'll hear people who've come out of the closet as gay, certainly including me, say is that unexpectedly 
being out, no longer being afraid to be who you are. I mean, you're always somewhat afraid, but but now confronting the world as who you are, making that statement clarifies a host of other things. It it brings more clarity about issues like who your friends really are and what kind of job you like. It allows you to make other decisions with with greater integrity. There are cascading effects, and I'm hearing from you a very different, of course, but an example of one of those cascading effects, which is to the extent you can drop this carapace of fear, you're in a position to make better decisions with more integrity about who to interview, who not to interview. Absolutely. Um, and, and how to go about doing that. Yep. Definitely. So if if our last podcast played some small part in making that happen, that'll that'll make my day. It absolutely did. Yeah, for sure. I think this is a great note to end on. As always, you know, I have a list of notes of so many more things to talk about. But thank you this so much. This won't be our last encounter. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I would love to stay in touch. I, I'd like to know about the goat thing. The goat thing? Oh, you mean the goat that's on my shirt? What well, is it with the goat and Satanists? Why can't they come up with something better than a goat? Goats are you not are a, weird. Are you not a fan of goats? I mean, goats are weird. Goats are very weird. Okay, so... I, Okay, Don't, let's we won't go there now, but okay, saying, I will I will I will be, back. I'll I'll be, be back for more. <laughs> I will be happy to tell you all about the goats and why goats are important to Satanism. All right. Well, that is thank you so much again for coming on the show. I so appreciate your time and your friendship. And the link to your article will be in the show notes. It is called Uncanceling Ourselves. And also everyone go buy all of Jonathan Rausch's books. Uh, the Constitution of Knowledge is fantastic. And uh, go buy it for everyone for Christmas like I'm doing. Uh, just annoy the hell out of your friends by spamming them with, with his books. Um, all right. That is it for See this show. Yep. Ciao. That is it for this show. The music is by... 117, the theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening.